Well, good morning. Um, welcome to Honey Community Church. And say uh, happy Mother's Day to the moms. Also, um, I saw something happen this week in Huntington that I didn't think I would ever see. I saw this football town turn into a soccer town uh, by Marshall's, you know, the Marshall soccer team's doing amazingly well. Uh, and, you know, soccer is continuing to grow and becoming a more popular sport. But there's another sport um, that's growing just about as fast as soccer. Um, it's becoming super popular. You see it on ESPN a lot more now. Um, axe throwing. I, mean, I don't know if you've seen that. Um, axe throwing is one of the fastest growing sports in America. I think this is largely um, because of Blake Arvon, his efforts to make it popular. Um, so you see if you follow him on Facebook, there's always posts where he's, you know, throwing axe, hitting, you know, hitting the circle. And that's pretty much the goal, the aim of, of axe throwing is to, to um, hit the bullseye. It's pretty simple. It's simple to keep score. It's really challenging to actually do. But when you hit the bullseye, you're awarded the most points. That's the goal. That's the aim. And then you have these concentric circles that move away from the target where you receive less points. Um, but the goal is to hit the middle. The center is the most important part. Our passage this morning is about the most important bullseye in human history. So if you brought a Bible this morning, turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. The whole point of this text is to show us that right now, as we're sitting here in these pews all throughout this room, that right now God is on his throne being worshipped and praised as he so rightfully deserves. This passage serves to reorient our focus to God. God is the bullseye. He is the center of everything. So let's turn our attention to the most incredible scene um, the world will ever see. So Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 says this. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and behold, uh, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was as it were a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures... Each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. Let's let's pray. As we read this incredible scene, let's let's pray to this God who is sitting on this throne. Uh, Father, we um, come this morning, and we need to be reminded of this passage We need to be reminded that you are at the center of everything. Many of us walk in this morning, Lord, knowing that we need to refocus, reorient our lives around you, that you have not been the center of our lives. Um, You've been on the peripheral. And so we um, have made much of ourselves. We have been at the center. And Lord, I pray this morning you would convict us. Lord, help us to repent. Um, Help us to join the elders and these beasts who rightfully worship you. So, Lord, help us to see you for who you are, and may we behold you this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So here's John. What an incredible challenge he he has before him, Um, trying to describe... Put, you know, using words to describe something that's indescribable. And so he's, limit, he's limited by his vocabulary, by what he sees, trying to describe from, you know, first century perspective. Um, we have in this passage, I, I think, the most majestical theophany in all of Scripture. scripture. A, a theophany is, it's, it, it's simply when um, God visibly appears to mankind. And so, they don't happen all that often. You have like the Garden of Eden, you have God and Moses, you've got Isaiah in the temple, a few others, but theophanies are really, really rare. Um, in this passage, we have an eyewitness testimony from John about the one seated on the throne, and it's one of the most fullest descriptions of God in the entire Bible. So you, when you're reading you know, from the beginning of the Bible, reading throughout, you see these different descriptive languages of God. You know, he's faithful. He's, he's um, provider. He's kind. He's just, full of mercy. But here's, like, we're trying to put words, like, what he looks like. Not what he is, but what he looks like. And John is, you know, he, he has a big task before him. In this chapter, in this chapter John is basically... He's opening our eyes to an unseen world, something no one's ever seen at this point. Now, God has been gracious to allow John to see what's never been seen. So now John is trying to describe for us this unseen world. He's allowing us to see what we spiritually cannot yet still see. Uh, one of the goals of this vision is to overwhelm our imagination. So I don't know, as I was reading, I don't know if you let your mind just kind of wander out. Um, but this passage encourages us to do so. It lets us just run wild. 
as we try to attempt to picture what John is actually describing um, in this passage. We just wrapped up those seven letters to the seven churches. Each church had its own issues, its own struggles. I think one of the reasons why this chapter comes directly after those seven letters is to help those churches and even us today to refocus, to remind them and us of what's really happening in reality. Like right now as we're sitting here, this scene in Revelation 4 is unfolding in heaven right now. To the churches that were facing persecution, chapter 4 is filled with hope that they have a God who is at the center, who is sovereign, who is in total control, and can help them endure their suffering. It's a reminder for them that Rome is not sovereign, that Caesar is not Lord. Yes, he may sit on a throne, but his throne sits underneath this throne in heaven. To the churches who are compromising doctrine, chapter 4 serves as a reminder of the holiness of God, that those churches one day will stand before this holy God and give an account for their actions. With the seven letters, Jesus gave us a view of what's going on below, like what's happening on earth. Now the scene shifts. He's giving us a view from above. All that is taking place on earth is under the sovereign control of the one and the the one who sits on the throne in heaven. So let's turn our attention to this epic scene as we walk through this chapter together. Verse 1 says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So after this, I look. Well, what is the this here that he's talking about? We need to remember the context, those seven letters from chapters 2 and 3. It took us about two months to go through those seven letters. But if you remember back to chapter 1, when we first started, John encountered the exalted and glorified Christ. And when he encountered that Christ, remember, he fell down at his feet as dead. It freaked him out. He was scared to death. He just fell. Jesus responds with this in chapter 1. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Then Jesus continues to dictate to the apostle John these seven letters to the seven churches in Asia, which take up the next two chapters. So If you have one of those red letter Bibles, you see Jesus begin to speak in chapter 1, and then he basically just dictates in chapters 2 and 3. We come to the end of chapter 3 with the closing of the seventh letter. Chapter 4 begins to transition. So this morning, we come to a set change. The previous setting was all the problems, all the issues that the church was dealing with. 
false teaching, bad leadership, compromise, persecution, idolatry. But this morning, the setting is different. The setting of this passage is here to remind us that even in the midst of all the brokenness in the church, everything is going to be okay. That is a wonderful truth for us that we need to be reminded of because we live in a broken world. Like today's Mother's Day. It's a day where many people are excited and celebrating their mamas. But I also know that Mother's Day for a lot of ladies is, is a terrible day of the year. Maybe you lost your mom. Maybe you have a terrible relationship with your mom. Maybe you want to be a mom and for, for whatever reason right now you cannot be a mom. So today it's... You know, we, we all come in with brokenness. But what chapter 4 reminds us is, is that everything is going to be okay. That God is, he's reigning from heaven. He is on his throne. That he conquers. And that we conquer through his conquering. And that we stand victorious. So, the after this, after all the problems in the church, after all the promises, so there's many promises that Christ makes to us in chapters 2 and 3. After all those promises made to the church, John looked and he sees a door standing open in heaven. Now here's some irony. If you were just to read straight through chapter 3 and the 4, you might pick up on this. But if you remember... Back with the church of Laodicea, the door was closed to Jesus. He was standing there knocking, if you remember. But here, in chapter 4, the doors of heaven is open um, wide for John. John hears a voice like a trumpet inviting him in at what must take place. Suddenly, John is in the spirit. We saw that phrase in chapter 1. And he goes on to tell us in verse 2, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. John sees inside the door of heaven. And notice the first thing that he sees. The throne. Not streets of gold. Not a mansion. Not deceased relatives. But the throne of God. Everything revolves around this throne. This throne is at the center of the universe. It is the bullseye of human history. This chapter forces our attention to the one at the center. When we see God for who he is, everything else in all of creation becomes secondary. It's not as important. A throne, it communicates authority. So the one on the throne, he's in authority, it's absolute authority. He is in control. God and his reign are at the center of the created world. At the center is the throne of God surrounded by worship of heaven. You and I are not the center of the world. I don't know if you knew that or not. God is at the center. John's vision reminds us of our placement. This is God's world, not ours. We need to be reminded of that often. We live in such a narcissistic society. It's all about you. Make much of you. Live however you want to live right now. It's terrible advice for you. 
This world is not about you. It's about God. Much like the bullseye has concentric circles of importance, so does our lives have concentric circles of importance. Um, a lot of kids just ran out of this room and to these classrooms. Parents, one of the greatest things that you can do is to keep God at the center of the universe. Do not make those children the center of your universe. It's not good for them. The best thing you can do for those kids is to make God at the center of your universe. That's teaching them how to worship God and not make much of their children one day. Everything exists to glorify God. God doesn't exist to serve me or you or to follow our agendas. And that is good news for us. Think about those seven churches for a minute. For anyone who is enduring suffering, God being at the center is both humbling and liberating. It teaches us that we are not in control of our lives. God is. He has the right to order your circumstances as he sees fit. The centrality of God should inform every area of our lives. Your time, your talent, your treasure should all be informed by God being at the center of the universe. Your day today does not belong to you. You may make plans, but it, it does not belong to you. It's God's day. Your talents do not belong to you. Your treasure, your finances do not belong to you. They belong to the Lord. Everything is His. The throne of God being at the center of heaven even informs our liturgy on Sunday mornings. Liturgy, liturgy means like our structure, like how, do, how does our Sunday mornings flow here at church? Sunday morning is structured to remind us that Sunday morning is not about you. Sunday morning is about God. We make much of him. Andrew and his team, they do such a great job of picking songs that don't make much of you. They make much of God, lift up his name. Uh, they help us learn who he is. And so that's kind of the aim. Um, where many people come in on Sunday mornings with this mindset that the congregation is the audience. Like Andrew, the band, they're here to serve you, and the sermon's here to serve you. Um, I can only imagine how online viewing has aided with that, how, you know, it's the, the, the idea that you're home right now watching a living room and everything's about you, that we're here serving you. The truth is the online viewer nor the congregation is the audience. The audience this morning is the same audience that we see in Revelation chapter 4. It's God. God is the audience. We have an audience of one. This worship service this morning is not about you. The congregation, you, me, so whoever's preaching, the band, we're all participants in this worship service. You are, from an earthly perspective, carrying out the role of the 24 elders and the four living creatures from this passage. 
in some sense, week after week, we are reenacting this scene from Revelation chapter 4. We're gathering corporately to sing and bring praise to his great name, making much of him. You were designed and created to make much of God, to praise his wonderful name, but far too often we like to praise our own name. So the throne of God is at the center of heaven, and he should be at the center of our lives as well. Verse 3, we see John's attempt in describing the indescribable God. Look at this. He who sat there had an appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So that's his attempt to describe God. I wish he would have given us a little more. He had an appearance of jasper, carnelian. Those are um, commonly reddish in, in color. Uh, and then there was, around the throne was a rainbow that had an appearance of, of emerald. It wasn't emerald. It just had the appearance of emerald. So this beautiful green. So greens and reds. Maybe it's a Christmas time. I don't know. Um, but there's like this glow. Um, the rainbow, um, I think, reminds us of the sign of God's covenant, not to destroy the earth with a flood. Um, it's a symbol of God's patience, his mercy, his kindness. Um, but that's what we get. You know, like, come on, John. You get to see heaven. You get to see the throne. And we get, yeah, it looks like rocks and some, like a rainbow. I don't know. Uh, I, it's, I think it's similar how probably Olivia feels when I come home from work. She says, how was your day? I'm like, it was good. That's it? Who'd you meet with? What'd you do? Come on. Like, that's what I want with John. Like, give me something else, bro. And so here in verse 4, John, like, he, he works his way, like, what's around the throne. So look at verse 4. He says, around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, John doesn't tell us who the 24 elders are, so we're left here to make some Educated guesses. So here are some popular attempts. These 24 elders could be like angels representing people of God. Um, or they could be like a symbolic number representing the 12 tribes from the Old Testament you know, of Israel, 12 apostles. So you've got like this 24, it's an interesting number. So you see like 12, you know, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. So they're representatives of that. Or could it be like actual humans who have already received the rewards? It's interesting the language used here, coming right after those letters, because um, there's some similar language used here. Like, think about this. So in the church at Laodicea, Jesus promised to the ones who conquer, they will sit with him on his throne. Well, here we see them sitting on thrones. Jesus promised the church in Sardis, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. And now John sees these 24 elders clothed in white garments. Um, then the church at Smyrna, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now John sees the 24 elders wearing golden crowns. So you've got thrones, garments, crowns, but why only 24? Surely there were more than 24 individuals in Christ among those seven churches. 
Maybe the vision of the 24 elders in verse 4, seated on the throne, around, you know, around the throne, clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads, maybe just declares to us that God keeps his promises, that Jesus is faithful to give what he said he would give. So the point is, is I don't know who these 24 elders are. We can't be for certain. One day I will know, but right now I don't. And so um, I would lean maybe to, to where it's these... Um, you know, it's actual saints who are, you know, have received these promises that we've seen in churches. But I don't know that. Um, but then John, it's like he's like, I gave, you know, one verse too many to what's going on. Let me go back to the throne. So he, he takes our attention back to the throne, um, to what's most important. So in verses 5 and 6, he continues to develop the scene at the throne. Verse 5, he says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. John sees God on the throne. And the seven torches before the throne are most likely this visible representation of the Holy Spirit. We saw that same kind of language back in chapter 1. Now he's using it again. Um, next week in chapter 5, we get to see Christ. And so it seems like this scene unfolding is this Trinitarian scene of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Verse 5 in the beginning of 6 um, paints this beautiful picture of God's holiness. This thing that John sees, which looks like a sea of glass, seems to be creating this idea of distance or separation between God and everything else. This idea that, that he is transcendent. He is set apart. He is holy. Then there's flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. This is like the type of thunder, lightning, like summertime, like just like boom, gives you a heart attack, scares you. Um, I remember Olivia and I, we, um, before living in this house where we are now, we lived um, over in Enslow Park, and there's something about where we lived attracted lightning. It would hit all the time. And there was one time, she and I, we were in the kitchen, and we had a window in the kitchen, kind of looked out to the driveway, which is where it would always hit, kind of out there. And this lightning came down and hit to where... In our kitchen, it turned purple. Like we just, like the light from the lightning was purple. That's how close it was. Scared us to death. Like, you know, usually like you have time like the count between the, the lightning and the thunder of how far away. It was like simultaneously they just hit. Lightning, boom, scared us to death so loud. Probably the loudest sound I've ever heard in my life. Xavier's probably about two at this point. You may have been pregnant with Karis. I don't remember. Did we, I don't think we even had Karis yet. He was upstairs sleeping, taking a nap. We run upstairs because we thought the house was hit with lightning. Uh, he was okay, but we were scared to death. This is what's going on. Like, this is the God that we, that we serve and have. Like, like, this would scare you to death. Chapter 4 is an incredible description of God. But what is not described here in chapter 4 is John's reaction. We don't have, like, you know, I can give you my account of that day where we were scared to death, but we don't have John's response. I would love 
to know how John responded to this. Did he fall down again? Was he afraid? Um, does he run away? Is he hiding behind something? Is his mouth open? But I, what I love here is like he sees this scene unfolding. And I think it, I bet his life was changed from there on out. And what I mean is you and I, we're so often tempted to sin because we don't dwell on the throne room of God. We just don't naturally do that. I don't know. How many of you this week just thought about the throne room of God? I, I didn't, honestly. I mean, I think about God, but I don't think about this scene. I guarantee you that, that John, in this moment, was probably not struggling with gossip, with lust, with jealousy, materialism. He was so wrapped up with the exalted God that sin didn't even come across his mind. If we could keep this scene in our minds throughout the week, I am confident that we would struggle less with sin. We often sin because we forget about this scene that's taking place right now in heaven. We need to pray that God would make us, you know, that God would put this in our minds. I wonder if God would put this on our minds, if we thought about the throne room of God, that when we were tempted, that we would be reminded that only a fool would choose the filthy, the worthless, the cheap imitation of pleasure that Satan offers us over the reality and the reward that we have in Christ. You know what I mean? If we're thinking about God and who he is and what he's doing, and then you think about this thing that you struggle with, it would pale in comparison. We also need to be reminded that God will satisfy his holiness against your sin. He will have justice. His justice will either be done against your sin in hell forever, or you will place yourself under his protection in Jesus. That's it. If you run to Christ, if you trust in Jesus and place yourself under his cross, the penalty he paid for sin in his death on the cross will count for you. This is known as the substitutionary atonement, and it covers you. If you don't trust Jesus, you will pay the penalty for yourself, and that penalty will never end. Will you trust him? Will you turn to him this morning? What's keeping you from turning to Christ? You need to resist. You need to turn, to flee, to conquer, to honor Christ. John continues to describe this scene. Look at the second half of verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. It's like this, they see all that's going on. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. 
Notice here the word like. Hey, John doesn't actually see a lion, an ox, a man, or an eagle. He sees things like those things. These creatures are very similar to the creatures that the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah write about. So maybe John saw the same living creatures that they had seen, or at least they were similar. Or perhaps John, knowing those passages really well, was influenced by those writings. And so when he saw these images, he wrote them down to be similar to those images. Regardless, there's something here in these creatures and about God that's, that's captured by this likeness. And so you think about it, like God is noble, he's royal, he's fast like a lion, he's massive, patient, strong like an ox. God has the sensitivity and um, spirituality that we can see in the face of a human being. And he is majestic, powerful, like an eagle in flight. Behold, this is our God. He will never bore you. You can never get over this God. He will never fail you. He cannot be overcome. He cannot be outmuscled, outsmarted, outdone. And his goodness will never fail. This is your God. Behold him. Make much of him. Let your imagination run wild this morning as you try to picture this scene. In verse 8, John continues to explain this heavenly scene. In the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So John tells us in verse 8 that they never, these creatures never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's like if they stop for just a second, they rob God of the glory that's due. This is similar to when um, a few months ago I preached Isaiah 6. If you remember that passage, Isaiah is another theophany and Isaiah sees um, the Lord in the temple on a throne, and he sees the seraphim, and the seraphim continues, they, they call out to, to one another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. What we see here is God is being praised simply for who he is. He is holy, and they are making much of him. He's eternal. He who was and is and is to come, this means that he will never die or be defeated. Ever. Uh, yesterday, we um, got to watch three baseball games. I got to coach a couple of them. And, uh, um, you know, our kids love to win. Um, you know, we, we teach our kids, like, it's, it's fun to play baseball or sports, whatever. Uh, and as I'm coaching, you know, sometimes the, the, the girls, they will, uh, if it's softball or the boys playing baseball, they'll talk about wanting to have fun and... Um, but they've realized it's more fun to win than it is lose. So I tell them, well, let's, let's try to win. You know, as, I co as I'm coaching the kids, let's try to win. You think about God. God always wins. He's undefeated. So he's eternal. No one's, 
No one's come before him. No one can outlast him. And as much as people, you know, these atheists will say that God does not exist, he does. God exists. God is worthy of praise simply because he is God. There is no one else like him. That's what makes him God. No one else is holy. No one else is eternal. God is worthy to be praised. Then notice how all the beasts worship the one on the throne. Like all the attention is to them. I, I wonder, you know, if I just saw the beast itself, I might worship the beast. But these beasts are all giving worship to the one on the throne. And notice how when the beasts worship, it influences all the others to do the same. Look at verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. We see here that whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, then the 24 elders fall down before him. And notice the reason the elders say that God is worthy. Um, they say in verse 10 it is because he created all things. And they existed and were created by his will. Nothing exists that God didn't create. It's amazing to think about all the things we see and don't see God created. This verse also shows us that nothing exists apart from God's will. He spoke it into existence. It was by his good will. Everything that exists was created by God. No exceptions. Everything that exists is to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is worthy of worship. He created everything, and he did it all according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. And notice that he gave these 24 elders, he gave them crowns, and look what did they do. They, they joyfully give them right back. They acknowledge that all that they have is his gift to them. They did not earn it. Nothing um, they have would keep um, that they would keep from the one on the throne who is majestic, awesome, holy. They're just giving it right back to God. How well are you reflecting this principle of the 24 elders? What has God given you that you are withholding from him? What's keeping you from trusting God and just giving it right back to him so your time your time, your talents, your treasures? Or are you just giving those right back to God? Everything that you have actually already belongs to God. My hope for you this morning is that you would position your life in the same way that the four living creatures and the 24 elders position their lives with God at the center. So your weekly calendar would look like God is at the center of your life, not you. 
not your children, not your job, but God. Who are you investing in? Who are you inviting over to your house? How are you spending your money? What does your bank account tell you about what's at the center of your world? You see, putting God at the center would solve so many of your problems. Seeing God for who he truly is would radically change how you would live out your day. If you see God as he is, you will worship him. He is worthy. And so this morning, will you join the 24 elders and the four living creatures right now in worship this morning? As the band comes back this morning, we'll keep singing. As we sing these songs that are describing God and what he's done for us, I want you to let your imagination run wild. I want you to try to picture yourself being John, that Christ has spoken to you, said, hey, here's the door into heaven. And this morning, as we sing corporately together, that we are peeking in that door or from a window in heaven, that we're reminded of what God has done for us. You might need to close your eyes so you're not distracted, but allow your mind to see God for who he is. And I encourage you to join the elders, these four living creatures, and sing to a holy, eternal, and faithful God. Let's pray. God, this morning, may we join the heavenly hosts in worshiping you. God, may you impress upon our minds this scene unfolding in Revelation 4. So this week that we would turn away from sin, that we wouldn't be tempted because we're just dwelling upon you and what's happening in, in reality. So it would help us to see the things that are unseen, that we be reminded of the scene unfolding, that it encourage us to keep persevering through suffering, through difficult times, that there's coming a day where we're going to be with John the other apostles, the saints of old, our loved ones. We're going to be around the throne and forever and ever and ever just be in glory, singing, praising, living for you. So I pray that we would prepare our hearts for that, that scene. Or may we just worship you this morning. I pray this in Christ's name.